Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, a place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we look at the government's management of the economy in the coronavirus crisis. And are we seeing the beginning of the end of neoliberalism? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, involuntarily self-isolating since I was five years old. The coronavirus crisis is continuing to have detrimental effects all over the world and it's likely to be with us for some time to come. Governments have been doing their best to manage the crisis, but it seems some countries are doing better than others. Our own government has been dragging its feet both on the economic and health fronts and it seems that it's directing its actions based on ideological pursuits rather than putting that all aside and working out what is the best outcome for the entire community. Its economic action has been slow. Two stimulus packages have been announced but not a cent has actually been received by anyone yet and its messaging on health outcomes has been contradictory and confusing. Governments of all persuasions need to rise to the occasion in a time of crisis, but it seems that this government is going to exhaust all the other options before embarking on the correct course of action. Is this the right government for the times, or do we need something different? We keep waiting for the Prime Minister to rise to the occasion. We can't fault his consistency. He hasn't yet. He failed in the bushfires. He failed in the floods, and he's now failing again. We are now where we should have been three weeks ago. It has come out today that it was Border Force who allowed the people off the cruise ship, of whom 130 had coronavirus, not the New South Wales Department of Health. It was the Border Force who allowed them to go off, not self-isolate, and just disperse amongst the community. The damage here could be untold. The stats were something like it took three months for the first 100,000 people to be infected, one month for the next 100,000, and then three days for the next 100,000. This is America, but the figures here will be just as bad. We should have gone into lockdown earlier. We should have closed schools. I know that there are arguments for keeping schools open. And I will say that the compromise of keeping your kids at home, but keeping the schools open for, for students whose parents can't stay at home with them isn't horrible provided it's managed properly at the schools. Of course, teachers have a hard enough job as it is, and they will do their very best. I'm not doubting that at all. But can you do the impossible? Businesses should have shut. Public transport should have shut. They haven't done this yet. He's saying on one hand, stay home. The other hand, if you have a job, it's essential. What if all your work stuff is at work? So you feel the need that you need to go in. And then 25 other people do. What if... You're in a a non-essential position, but you're called into work anyway because for whatever reason, your employer doesn't want you at home. There are so many factors. Well, you're right. There, There are so many factors and there are so many considerations that do need to be taken into account. This is a difficult situation and we can see that there are no easy answers. We've been criticised in the land of podcasting and social media for being churlish and focusing on the problems this government is creating, when what we should all be doing is offering as much support during these difficult times. And undoubtedly, these are very difficult times and a unique set of circumstances that do need to be resolved. But this is also the reason why governments exist. They are meant to resolve these sorts of problems. This government is creating so many mistakes and so many errors in the economy and in the management of health as well. What are we meant to do? Just stand by and let it all happen without any recourse? We can look at Woolworths. 
They're not a, a firm I'm particularly enamoured of, but they've done their very best. You know, the senior citizens' hour of shopping, it started off a bit disastrous, but I thought that it was a good idea that it didn't mean that it couldn't work. You just had to rethink it. Part of it was to do with supply chains. Part of it was to do with crowd management. Part of it was to do with messaging. But it was a good idea to get the vulnerable in at a separate time to everybody else. We have to work through this. That type of good idea where they've listened to advice, they've looked at ideas, and they've come up with new and, and let's be frank, unprecedented ideas should be encouraged. Standing there and giving contradictory information standing there looking like a deer in the headlights, standing there not knowing what to do, speaking fast at the top of your register, minimising your own responsibility and looking for the best PR shouldn't be accepted. We need better, even if we don't deserve better. Lives are at stake. This has a percentage rate worldwide of 4%. Now, we've been lucky in Australia, it's about 1% or 2%. But if it hits, say, 4%, that's one in 23 people or something. Let's call it 3%. That's one in 33 people. Everyone listening to this knows at least 33 people, and that puts it into some kind of perspective. Primarily, the coronavirus is a health crisis, but it's a health crisis that is creating an economic crisis, not just in Australia, but it's affecting global economies as well. And when there's an economic downturn, People lose their jobs. It's not, and in this case, it's not happening over several months or several weeks. It's happening over a matter of days. So many people are losing their jobs and losing their jobs quite quickly. And of course, if people are losing their jobs, they won't have any income and they'll be seeking support from the government. And that's where Centrelink comes into it. It's the government's human and welfare support agency. Now, we had a bit of a mishap uh, during the week where the Centrelink website actually crashed and the the minister responsible, that's Stuart Robert, his response to the Centrelink website crash was to initially blame a hacker attack for it. And again, this gets back to the continuous government uh, responses to any sort of crisis as well. They'll deflect it to someone else and not take any responsibility. And it's also the same excuse that he used during the 2016 census meltdown that it was a hacking attack. Someone else was to blame. The reason why the Centrelink website crashed was that it, it was because so many people were trying to access the website at the same time. And true to form, this government didn't build the Centrelink website to cater for this type of capacity when it should have. Stuart Robert, as I mentioned, he is the Minister for Human Services. He just shrugged his shoulders and said, my bad. Now, My bad is a slang term from the 1970s and it was popularised in the 1995 film Clueless, which seems to be quite appropriate in this case. (laughs) But do we want a minister who can quote pop culture cliches from the 1970s or the 1990s or do we want a minister who can actually do his job and take on responsibility? Under the Westminster system, which has been trashed over the last... hmm, Pick pick your time period... (laughs) The minister held ultimate responsibility. Now, that meant that if things went well, the minister got all the praise. Whether he or she deserved it or not was another thing. But the minister got the glory, got the picture in the paper, got the TV interviews, got the, the awards. The public service shut up and kept doing their work. Their reward was permanent job in which it was very hard to be removed from. And, of course, if something went wrong, the minister resigned or 
took full responsibility, whether it was the minister's fault or not. Again, if the public servants had made a mistake or had acted improperly, the minister was seen to have been derelict in his or her duty. As a result, it worked out fairly. You were in a well-paid job with good perks, a lot of power, a lot of... You could lose it if things went wrong. It gave a lot of incentive for good ministers to work well. And we've had a lot of very good ministers on both sides or on all sides of politics who have worked diligently and worked hard. They may not have always been successful at what they did, but they could genuinely have done their best and their best was good enough. And if it wasn't good enough, they accepted that and moved on. We don't have that at the moment. The public service and ministers do need to play their part and there are two factors in play here, of course. There's health and there are economic factors. Now, on the economy, the money is just not being delivered by the government quickly enough. It's needed right now and it needs to be delivered into people's bank accounts urgently. This compares with the government response during the global financial crisis in 2008 when the Rudd government sent out checks directly to as many people as possible This caused political problems for them at the time because in their haste to get the money out, people that had actually died received the cheques as well. The reasoning at that time was that to save the economy, which is what they did, people in the community needed the money immediately. And the implications of sending money to people that had died was an incidental cost of rescuing the economy. And that was a price the Rudd government was prepared to pay. Targeted spending was going to take too long at that stage and the economy would have plunged without it. The Morrison government is dithering about where this money should go. There have been two stimulus packages announced to the value of $189 billion, but it's still sitting in the government coffers and I'm not exactly sure what they're waiting for. The Labor opposition, they did offer their legislative support. They've passed the legislation for these two packages. If we compare this behaviour with the Liberal opposition back in 2009, they voted against Labor's two stimulus packages. And Tony Abbott actually missed the vote because he had been drinking too much wine and had fallen asleep in his office. And as we mentioned in our previous podcast, the Liberal Party scored political points for the next decade. Labor hasn't been standing in the way of these stimulus packages and they also pretty much offered a blank cheque to the government of $40 billion to spend in whichever way possible. Labor's response has been economically sensible and politically sensible as well. People say that the money in the Rudd-Swan stimulus was wasted and they point to things like it got sent to dead people. What about the families of grieving people who suddenly got an extra thousand or two thousand dollars because mum or dad or one of the children had died and they were coping with funeral costs and just the general grief of living. I don't think it went to people who were long dead and if it did the money just went into the estate where it sat and in many cases was returned. People say oh they built a thing at the school that the school didn't want. Again the point really wasn't to give schools halls or collars or what have you. The point was to get the money moving so that the GFC would be avoided. And what happened? All this money went out and what happened? The GFC was avoided. Even the the deaths in the pink bats, as terrible as they were, it was a few dodgy contractors who didn't follow the rules and tried to profit more than they should have. 
it wasn't the fault. And in fact, Peter Garrett was cleared and even praised in the um, Royal Commission at the time for being a diligent and good minister. Peter Garrett was a responsible minister at the time. It should also be said a, a Royal Commission set up to get him and Bill Shorten and Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd. It didn't get any of them because in that case they did nothing particularly wrong. Parliament did sit for one day during the week and there was a proposal presented by Anthony Albanese to amend standing orders so that Parliament could meet in a different way, including using online services such as Skype or Zoom, but this was actually knocked back by the government. And Parliament is not sitting until August. Now, you'd expect in this day and age, and especially given the circumstances, that the government would be looking at other avenues to keep Parliament open. But as we've mentioned before, this is a government that avoids scrutiny and avoids accountability. But in the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves, you'd expect more scrutiny and more accountability, not less. There had been an argument that Australian Parliament House would be a health risk, but schools are currently open, early education centres are open, hairdressers are open for business. Why can't Parliament be opened? And if there are unreasonable health risks for Parliament, well, they should be adopting internet-based options to continue with this scrutiny and accountability. But as it now stands, Parliament will be closed until August, and that's unacceptable. It would have been a good time to ask questions about how the Ruby Princess managed to sail all the way into Sydney Harbour. Again, the IPA, with its removal of government, is controlling and I think it is Scott Morrison's natural political instinct to remove government. It's about scrutiny, certainly, and it does seem that the Prime Minister does not want a lot of scrutiny on his policies and behaviour of at least some of his ministers. But it's also a political approach where government is seen as a hindrance to the market. We've seen now that the market should not be the major policy lever that it is. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we ask, is this the end of neoliberalism and what will replace it? Have you heard it on the news? About this fascist growth and Evil men with racist views Spreading all across the land Don't just sit there on your ass And let that funky chain dance Brother, sister, shoot your best We don't need this fascist crew thing Modern history has shown that in times of crisis, the world does have the ability to stop, reassess the direction it's heading in, and develop strategies for a better future. After the Great War, over 100 years ago, the Paris Peace Conference resulted in the creation of the League of Nations. Ultimately, that failed in its primary purpose, which was to prevent further war. And after the Second World War ended in 1945, we saw the creation of the United Nations, instigation of the Breton Woods Agreement, which set up new terms of monetary relations between North America, Western Europe, Australia and Japan. It also resulted in the creation of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development and the International Monetary Fund. The mode of thinking at that stage was that there needed to be control over speculative financial capital, there was a need to consolidate Keynesian economic thinking and stabilise world economies. 
that was an economic thinking that existed until the onset of the of neoliberalism in the early 1980s. But there have been calls for a new mode of economic thinking to guide us through this current economic crisis around the world. In 1945, the world had Churchill, Roosevelt and Curtin, among others, and these are great national figures in their respective countries. But now we have Boris Johnson, Donald Trump and Scott Morrison. We asked the question before if Australia had the right leadership right now, but internationally, do we have the right leadership to create a new financial and economic structure to guide us through this crisis? I think there's going to be a clean-out. The market model, where the market solves everything, is failing. market cannot cope with a pandemic. The market cannot cope with natural disasters. It can cope with the flow of money. And it's really funny how Marx is right on this stuff. Now, before our critics start hammering on the keyboard, I don't agree with everything Marx said, but he was certainly right on money and labour in terms of the only real value that money can produce is through labour. With currency traders, with bankers, with people who don't deal in actual tangible products, you don't have a useful tool to construct products and services. You just have a tool that builds on itself. And this was where Marx's sneering term capitalism starts to derive from. Of course, it's taken up by, by those who it described as a, as a great name, which often happens. I think what happens here is we will move to some kind of Keynesian those with privilege and power will hold on for it as long as they can, but they're ultimately fighting a losing battle. And I think we're changing well beyond the capacity of those in charge to be able to stop. There have been a few neoliberalist and libertarian economists coming out over the past few months, and it's almost as though they're preparing for the final battle in a lost cause. They have been ridiculing Keynesian economics and government intervention in the economy, and they've been asking the question, well, what good is an economic philosophy if it's only useful once a century or when the world is in a crisis, such as the end of the First World War or the Depression or the Second World War or during the global financial crisis? But at least it seems they are admitting government intervention into the economy is a good thing. And, and also, it's not like Keynesian economics is a cure that pops up just for a year or two. It's an intervention that needs to exist for decades. And it's a cure that always needs to be implemented whenever there are excesses caused by liberalist economic policies. But economics throughout the 20th and the 21st century has been cyclical. A decade of free market economics resulted in the Great Depression. After the Second World War between 1945 and roughly 1980, many economies around the world were influenced by Keynesian economics. And now we've roughly had around 40 years of neoliberal economics, which have resulted in better economic conditions overall. But when it crashes, it comes down with a huge crash. Perhaps there is a need for a new approach to economic management all around the world. I, yeah, the most successful we've ever been is that period from 1949-ish to about 1972. Wages were high, prices were high, but wages were higher, interest rates were fair, employment was full. This nonsense that we can only run at 95% employment is just a way of pushing wages down. Everyone had access to the credit they needed, or for most of it, only men had access to the credit they needed. 
I think we will move back to something like that. It won't be run by those who don't want a government and who are just interested in money. The middle class expanded, which meant people could get out of poorer circumstances into wealthier circumstances. It's now contracting, which is a worry. And the current thing may see a lot of home foreclosures. I don't mean at the end of this, but six months after as people are still trying to recover from the income hit they've taken as businesses fold because the the bills that were racked up and are now being collected. I think things need to happen quickly. The technical definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth, but the technical definition of a depression is far more severe. It's 12 consecutive quarters of negative growth or three years or a GDP decline of 10%. Since Federation in Australia, we've had around five recessions and just the one economic depression, and that's a period of 119 years. So a depression doesn't come along very often, thankfully, but we might be heading in that direction. The other words that we don't hear that often are Breton Woods. That's the name of the conference held towards the end of the Second World War in the United States. And that conference developed the international monetary system that essentially still exists today. During the global financial crisis in 2009, there were calls by the French president of the time, Nicolas Sarkozy, to develop new international financial systems. He suggested the term Breton Woods Mark II and suggested that we develop a new financial system from scratch. So clearly there has been some thinking about this for some time and instigating new measures is likely to be a response to severe economic conditions, which is what we're facing right now. But how do we start this process? Do we look internationally or do we focus on the intellectual resources available to us here? Australia had Ken Henry as the finance secretary during the global financial crisis, but who do we have available to us now? I don't, I don't know where we go from here. The public service has been politicised. The Liberal Party in Australia doesn't have the capabilities. The Labor Party doesn't have government or really the experience in terms of it's a whole new ministry and they're rebuilding. Morrison keeps rejecting a, a proper national government in which the strengths of both sides could be utilised. And I suspect that's partly because he realises that his weaknesses will become apparent. We've already seen them, but he's trying to hold off his voting base seeing them. I think his voting base has seen them anyway. I have a sense that he will probably become the most unpopular Prime Minister we've had in Australia. We're still in the early days of this crisis, but Morrison will be doing his best to be seen to be doing things and he has created the COVID-19 task force. I'd expect that he'd have some people with economic credibility, economic intellectuals trying to work out some lateral ways of approaching the difficulties that we're currently facing, as well as a series of well-credentialed health experts and doctors with a high understanding of epidemiology and public health, and perhaps some experts that can traverse the two areas of health and the economy. But this task force is to be headed up by Neville Power. He was the CEO of Fortescue Metals up until 2017 and is currently the chair of Perth Airports Corporation. Now, to be honest, I don't know too much about Neville Power, but I'm not sure if this is the right sort of person that you need to head up such a task force. It's just more jobs for the mates. 
Yes, no. He may have a heretofore unknown background as an immunologist or head of hospital or something, but I don't think so. I don't know what they're thinking. And I had thought that this idea that if you've run one type of industry, you can run any type of industry, died in the early 2000s when it became apparent that that didn't work. So you'd have heads of manufacturing going into finance businesses because they were popular CEOs, but they failed at it. I'd have expected a couple of relevant politicians, you know, maybe the Minister for Health and the Shadow Minister for Health, the head of the health department, or maybe the heads of state health departments, a few doctors. The former Labor MP, Greg Combay, he is also a member of the COVID-19 task force, but again, I'm not sure if that's the right sort of person that you need on this task force. Perhaps the government is playing this out again through the prism of politics, so they can't be accused of partisanship, even if they're not choosing the right people for this task force. The other factor is that not only is this coronavirus a health crisis and an economic crisis, it's also an existential crisis. We could also be looking at what is the nature of government? What is the nature of society? What are we exactly trying to do as a community? And that's why I've suggested that there has to be a collection of thinkers and intellectuals involved in this process, similar to the Global Business Network or the Club of Rome. But something like this might be beyond us. But we do need to be able to sit down and think, well, why are we doing all of this? What is this project of Australia all about? I think that the system that we had before is gone. And I think, too, you either hop on, ride the avalanche or get crushed by it. There's a Sherlock Holmes story, His Last Bow, and at the end of it, it it's set just before World War One. And Holmes says to Watson, there's an east wind coming. And then there's, you know, Watson says it's a warm night. And he says, no, no, this wind will be cold and bitter and a great many of us will wither before it's over. And, of course, he was speaking about World War One. Now, it was written in 1917, set in 1914, but Conan Doyle was absolutely right there. Nothing was the same after World War One, And I think this virus might have the potential to be revolutionary in the fullest sense of the term. And it also depends on how long this pandemic will go on for. I, I suspect that if it only went on for a short period of time, it would probably be back to business as usual as soon as possible. And the changes that are required to stabilise the world economy probably would never occur. But this pandemic is going to be going on for, for a long, long time. And because the economy slows down, the community slows down and society slows down in Sydney today, mm. most people are indoors as far as I can tell. But this also gives time for introspection. It gives us time to rethink the future. What is the future going to look like economically, the health system, the education system? So this could end up being a positive whenever we get out of it. There's more time to stop and rethink the future. The systems that we have in place means that we can't just replace leaders that are not up to it. And, and you and I agreeing today that we, we just haven't got the right leadership required to resolve this crisis. In a democratic system, the only way that you can replace a leader if they're not up to it is that you have to wait until the next election for reckoning. And up until that time, we just have to do the best with what we have. Just looking internationally, um, Boris Johnson, he'll probably remain in power for a decade, or at least the Conservatives will be in power for, for a decade. 
Morrison doesn't face the electorate until 2022, but there is a US election at the end of this year. And I think people generally, they just want to return to some sort of political normality. And it seems like the clown show that we've been seeing in the United States might come to an end pretty soon. Joe Biden seems to be offering some sort of return to normality. He's, he's not a great candidate for the Democrats, but he might be the, the one that triggers off an end to this political mayhem. You know, certainly we can see that the Morrison government still wants to play political games, even though it's at, it's at a lower level than usual. But if Morrison continues to play politics with this crisis, what will be the ramifications for the government at the next election? He started his speech the other night of a list of achievements, some of which skirted the boundaries of accuracy, shall we say. I think they're relying on this notion that the electorate has a short memory. It might have a short memory for scandal. If you've lost your house and your 200 or so friends know you've lost your house, and their 200 or so friends know that their friend has lost their house, etc., etc., memories for that type of stuff are long. If you've taken too long to stop a pandemic because you were worried about the optics, memories are long. You will never forget your elderly relative's funeral in which only 10 of you could go, for example. And I really hope, I really do, that I'm wrong here, that it's not going to be the disaster that they've been sharing up for. But if Italy is any guide, it's not looking good here. Well, it does get back to our initial point. This is not the time for political games and behaviours like that just need to be thrown out the window. It's not about trying to get the best political outcome for your political party. It's about what's right for the community. During the Great Depression, Labor came into office in 1929 and that was the government led by James Scullin. It was a difficult time, of course, and the Labor Party managed the Depression as well as they could. They alleviated the hardship on the community in so many different ways. And of course, that wasn't enough because it was such a difficult time, but they didn't play political games. And their reward was being thrown out of office in the 1931 election. But at least they did the right thing by the community. And if that's what needs to happen this time around, Morrison does what he needs to do to achieve the best outcomes for the community and get thrown out at the next election. Well, that's the price that has to be paid. But Political games, seeking political opportunity, this is just not the right time. And whether there is a new system or style of economic thinking that comes in to replace the current system, whatever that could be, I don't know, either a new style of neoliberalism or Keynesian economics or modern monetary theory, the community doesn't really care about that and they probably wouldn't know much about these ideas anyway. They just want the government of the day to do the right thing. Governments need to support the populace. Sometimes that's by leaving the populace alone, allowing people to continue with their lawful ethical lives. Sometimes, of course, that is sweeping in when there's a health crisis, when there's bushfires, when there's floods, when there's a terrorist attack. Whatever it is, people need to know that there is someone who is aware of what's going on, who is in charge. People like good, clear, consistent messaging. People like reassurance. People like help. They mightn't like to ask for it, but when it comes, they like it. And I think asking other people to supply that help can be wrong-headed. I think people who are in a better position do want to help, and that's fine and that's great, and we all do that. But 
sometimes you just need a good centralized coordinated effective plan that goes in and says here is your help and let's get you out of here and that's what the government has failed to do and as a student of the Australian Federation since 1900, it really breaks my heart to see such an inept government not even seeming to try. And the lack of accountability is stunning. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. And you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to everyone. And it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.